Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. Good morning, church. Let's open our Bibles to Mark chapter 4. We're going to begin in verse 35. Mark 4, 35. If you're visiting Christ Church today, uh, my name's Mark, and I get to be one of the ministers here, which is quite a privilege, and so we're glad you're with us. We're in week four of our series called Relentless Pursuit, which is a look at the Gospel of Mark, which is a very urgent book. Mark is writing to establish two things. The first eight chapters is about who he is. The last eight chapters is about what he came to do. So we call it the Relentless Pursuit because Mark is showing us that Jesus wasted no time and no steps to do what God called him to do. Uh, we have been studying so far, we had an introductory, uh, introductory week, and then we had a uh, week through chapter one, and what we learned is the identification of Jesus came by the voice of God. God said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, at his baptism. And then Jesus went out and he showed the strength of his ministry by using the word of God to overcome the temptations that came his way. And then he showed us the plan for his kingdom by inviting people that believed in him to invite other people to believe in him, to invite other people to believe in him. And then last week we talked about his authority to forgive sin. And I used kind of a comical example of walking in on two of our staff people getting in a fist fight and the one that got punched in the mouth, I just simply walked over to the person who hit them and simply said, uh, you're forgiven. And the person hit in the mouth would naturally respond, you can't forgive him because he didn't hurt you. So when Jesus forgave the man lowered by his four friends through the roof, what he was saying was, I forgive you because your sins have been against me. He identified himself as God. And that's where we've been in our series, understanding who Jesus is. The more we become custom uh, built and understood to who Jesus is, the more that that becomes a part of who we are, the more we can live out our calling just like he lived out his. So today I want to talk to you and from Mark chapter 4 and Mark chapter 5. Now time's not going to allow us to pull out every intricate detail. And there was an opportunity to have taken these stories that I'm going to share, the three snapshots, if you will, from Mark 4 and 5, and to treat, uh, treat them individually. But I chose absolutely to, or excuse me, actually, I decided to take these three stories and show from a higher level to talk about this truth. I want us to understand that Mark is showing that the lordship of Jesus is over everything we fear. That the lordship of Jesus is to overcome everything we fear. And today we're going to talk about what do we do with our fears? What happens when life is hard? So I'd like to begin by taking one of the snapshots found in Mark chapter 4, verse 35, and let's just refer to it as Lord over the storm. Here's the story. That day when Jesus came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There was also other boats with him. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. First point I want to make up is, isn't it nice to know that even Jesus wakes up grumpy? Fair? I, my wife asks me that all the time. It's reasonable. If Jesus can, then I can too. 
Uh, that's not really biblical, but we'll move on. Okay, what I want to point out here is the thing that I want you to notice about Mark's gospel, and I think it's significant as an apologetic, a, a way to defend the critics of Scripture. This is not mythology. This is not legend. Mark goes to great pains to give us details in the moment that if they were not true, the eyewitnesses that still existed could refute him. Why would he tell us what time of day it was? Why would he tell us where he slept in the boat and what he put his head on? There were other boats. This is one of those new things that spiked to me that I didn't know previous. There were other boats with them. It wasn't just them in the storm. There were eyewitness accounts. Now, when I was younger, and because Mark is writing about 40 years after the moment, I might have questioned whether you could retain that kind of detailed information 40 years later. Now that I am past 40, you can. I can tell you things about 1975, 40 years ago. I can tell you specific things. I shared this a few Wednesday nights ago. I remember in 1975 quitting the Cub Scouts because the Cub Scout meeting was at 7 o'clock on Tuesday and so was Happy Days. I wasn't going to miss Happy Days. So I left the Cub Scouts, which explains a lot of my integrity and morality, doesn't it? So I can remember 40 years ago. To detail, I remember the arguments with my parents over it. I can remember exact things from 40 years ago. Mark is writing this account, and he's surrounded by eyewitnesses. If he wasn't telling us the truth, it would have been refuted. So this is not a legend or a myth. This is a story that really occurred based on eyewitness account. And you'll also notice that the opponents of Christianity never questioned Jesus' miracles. They questioned who he was. Because the miracles were undeniable. There were too many eyewitnesses to say they didn't happen. And so because of that, you'll notice, outside of the resurrection, people just believed that Jesus turned water into wine and fed 5,000 people and healed and did what he did. So there's also a magnitude issue that I want us to talk about. Storms on the Sea of Galilee were very common. No teacher, preacher, whoever preaches one of these passages can help themselves from saying that the Sea of Galilee was located on the, with two mountains on the side and there was a gap between the mountains and a storm would roll over the mountain and that gap would cause the storm to go down on the lake and create, uh, create quite a storm. Now I want you to understand, he's in the boat with experienced fishermen. These are not novices like me who borrowed a buddy's boat, got in the middle of a pond and panicked. These were guys who for a living saw storms come across the Sea of Galilee, but in this moment, they were overwhelmed with the size of this storm and, the, and just how voracious it was. It was a powerful storm. And they were frightened. And they look over and there's Jesus asleep. And they wake him up. Which is amazing that he's sleeping. We'll talk about that another day. But he wakes up and he gives two commands. To the winds, he says, quiet. And to the waters, he says, be still. Now, I love the term be still because it reminds me of my wonderful grandma who I always sat with in church who pinched. She gave you one warning, be still. And if you weren't, she would pinch you. And because you loved her, you couldn't punch back, so you just sat there going, ow, woman, that hurt. So when I hear the word be still, I think about those moments in church where we were making noise and my grandma snapped and pointed, you be still. Jesus woke up and he said, and I want you to notice this, this is more than significant, this is essential. Jesus stands up and he says, quiet, be still, and it happened. Now, here's what I want you to know. It didn't happen eventually, it happened instantly. You can take a two-gallon bucket on this stage, I could drop a rock in it, and for the next four or five minutes, that, rock, that water is going to ripple. Jesus stood up and said, enough, and it stopped. He is the God, not of eventual power. He's the God of instant power. And the water ceased in his authority. He's in complete instant control. 
And then I need to tell you throughout the scriptures, especially in the Old Testament, the imagery of waters and seas, large bodies of water, have with them the concept of chaos, the concept of sin, darkness. If you ever saw the movie Jaws, you know that it wasn't the shark that scared you. It was not being able to see the shark where they just showed you the water line and the boat and some silly person putting their hand in the water and the whole time you turned away because you don't know what's in there. That whole thought that they use to capture the chaos is essential for us to understand here. That the sea meant something. Did you notice that some of the greatest miracles in the Old Testament is what God did with large bodies of water? Parting them and taking people through the chaos? Listen to Psalm 107, verse 23 through 29. Those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on great waters, they've seen the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. For he spoke and raised up a stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They rose up to the heavens. They went down to the depths. Their souls melted away in their misery. They reeled and staggered like a drunk man and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he brought them out of the distresses. He caused the storm to be still so that the waves of the sea were hushed. Fascinating. That the psalmist who wrote the 107th Psalm was depicting something that would happen thousands of years later when Jesus stood up in a boat and he said, enough. And instantly creation obeyed. If you want to know if this is a common teaching about Jesus, read the letter to the Hebrew Christians. It's your book called Hebrews. And you'll notice that that author is showing everything that we lost control of in sin, Jesus restores control to, including nature. But Jesus isn't done. Jesus rebukes the disciples. Now, I connected with Michael DeFazio, who teaches the Gospel of Mark over at Ozark, and I asked him the question. I said, I'm looking in the language, and I want to know what kind of language Jesus used. Did he get up, and it was one of those like He-Man moments where he said, be still, and everything just... But all it says is he said it. I love the smooth, cool Jesus, don't you? I mean, I'm not trying to make him like, you know, he just got up and he said, enough. Be quiet, be still. And it did. He didn't have to yell. He didn't have to throw a tantrum. He didn't have to threaten. He just got up and he said, I want it this way. And it was. Just the same way he created the world. I want it this way. And it was. But then he looks at his disciples and my understanding is he uses a different kind of language with them. He challenges them. He says, you were scared in the storm. Where is your faith? In other words, it's not you need to work harder at being faithful. He's saying, no, your faith is in the wrong place. Your faith was in your ability. It was in the boat. It was in this. But here's what I find most fascinating. It says when the storm came, they were scared. That's significant because they were experienced. But it says when Jesus calmed the storm, they became frightened. It's a different word. It's a heavier word. It has more weight and substance. Think about that. They were scared for their lives in the storm. They were more scared for their lives when the storm was calm. Why? Because the power in the boat was greater than the power in the storm. When they realized God just stopped it, they went, oh, we woke him up. (laughs) We wondered if he cared. We should die. And they were frightened. And Jesus said, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no hope? here's what I want to take away. And we preachers, we can stretch the soup really thin. I know we can. We can take everything Jesus said and turn it into a metaphor. I don't want to do that today. But I want you to notice something about Jesus. He never promises to stop storms. All of them. He only promises to be with you in them. And for some of us, we want more. 
But Jesus said, there are going to be storms. In fact, he ends the Sermon on the Mount talking about storms. He said, but I'll be there. My promise to you is faithful. I will be with you in the storm and you'll have nothing to fear. So here's what I want you to, you can write this down if you so choose. But I want you to remember this about the story of the storm. Focus on who he is, not what you're facing. In the midst of your storms, remember who promised to be there with you. And take your eyes off the storm you're facing. It's the encouragement of Mark when he talks about who Jesus is. Let's go to the Lord over evil. Chapter 5, verse 1. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. Let's go to verse 6. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of the man, you evil spirit. I think it's amazing that a demon who set against God's plan would ask Jesus to promise before God he wouldn't harm, harm him. Why? Because the demon knows Jesus has the authority to do whatever he wants. This is a statement we can't miss. Verse 11, a large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs. Allow us to go into them. He gave them permission and the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside and the people went out to see what had happened. Verse 17, then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region As Jesus was getting into the boat, a man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him, and Jesus did not let him, but he said, go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. So the man went and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. Last week, if you were here, I told you that I wanted to caution us about dismissing hell as a non-reality because in our culture today, to talk about hell is beneath us. It's uneducated, it's ignorant, it's believing in mythology. And my reason for believing in hell is pure and simple. Jesus did. If you want to dismiss it because you're more intellectual than Christ, take that challenge. I'm not going to. Jesus talked about it. He said, I go to prepare a place for you which is not in hell, so I believe in it. Today I want to caution you even more. There are some of us today that divorce themselves from spiritual forces. We don't believe in evil forces. We don't believe in demons. We don't believe in Satan. I want to caution you from doing that because Jesus sure did. And this is an eyewitness testimony account of what took place. So before we think we have evolved beyond that, you have to remember Paul says we don't battle against flesh, but we battle against spiritual forces of darkness. And you become, <laughs> you become a target when you live your life as if it's simply just you and a game of right or wrong. There's something so much deeper to this. Jesus shows up, this demon calls him out. This is what fascinates me throughout the Gospels. There is no demon who acted like they didn't know who Jesus was. When the boss shows up, every one of them's like, oh, he's here, son of David, son of God. They call him out. Several times Jesus was like, shh, I don't want him to hear it from you. But he, he casts this man out. I could talk to you about the pigs and the significance of that, but I want to focus more on Jesus here. Do you notice that it says the demon was frightened? Are you beginning to see a theme here in 4 and 5? Fear. They were scared in the boat. They were scared when they knew who he was. The demon was frightened because he knew who he was. And Jesus addresses this. So what do we do when dark forces come? What do we do 
when there, there seems to be this battle going on for our souls, not only between right and wrong, but between our desires to do the right thing and our desires to live in the darkness with all the filth. What happens when we fight not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities? What do we do in that? I, I want you to remember this truth. Realize that Jesus' power to protect is actual and reliable. When he came, demons must stop. There are people that want to take the book of Revelation and say there's going to be this great battle between Jesus and the demons. Listen to me carefully. There's no battle. He's greater. He's going to overcome instantaneously. Satan is going to be banished and locked away. There is no battle. Notice when Jesus came in the presence of 10,000 demons, it's the same reaction. They take a knee because his authority over evil is guaranteed. Now I want to show you a little bit of a comparison here. Mark shows us that when Jesus comes upon the demon-possessed man, here's his description of him. He's naked, he's bleeding, he's in great turmoil or angst, and he's in the tombs. Okay? Naked, bleeding, in turmoil, and living amongst the graves. At the end of Mark's gospel, how do we find Jesus? Naked, bleeding, in angst on the cross, and sent to the tombs. Church, do you see what Mark just did for us? How do you overcome evil? You allow Jesus to overcome evil and trade places. It was at the cross and at the tomb that Jesus looked more like the demon-possessed man because all the evil of the world was laid on him. And Mark is making a point to us because when Jesus leaves this man, he's no longer bleeding. He's clothed in his right mind and ready to follow Christ. The picture of the demon-possessed man is the picture of every one of us who follows. He takes on our condition so we can be restored to go tell the good news. It's a power over evil. So we focus on who he is, not what we're facing. And secondarily, we focus on his condition, not ours. When evil comes upon us and we're desperate, we look to the cross. We look to the image of our dying, bleeding, sacrificing Savior. And we say to ourselves, I will not accept the temporary in exchange for that which is eternal. I will not. So when evil comes upon us, how do we overcome it? We look on his condition, not ours. Let me take you to the last snapshot. It's Lord over death. Verse 21. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet. And he pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. Verse 25, and a woman who was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. Verse 27, when she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and she touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body and she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and he asked, who touched my clothes? Verse 33, then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet. Notice this phrase, trembling with what? told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, pay attention to this, don't be 
afraid, just believe. Verse 38, when they came to the house of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. Jesus went in and he said to them, why are all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in with the child, where the child was. He took her by the hand and he said to her, little girl, I say to you, get up. Verse 42, immediately she, got, she stood up and walked around. And this is where Mark irritates me. And then what? This is amazing. And you just dismiss it with, oh yeah, and then she got up. Did they party? Did they dance? Did they, of course they ate. But what did else did they do? What was the conversation? Where was the celebration? But Mark's like, but this happened, and now we're going to go on to the next thing because I'm going to establish to you that wherever there was fear, no matter what we fear, Jesus came to show us he's got it. He had it under control. You see, he's Lord even in the delay. What happens when Jesus doesn't do what I think he needs to do in my urgent panic? He's still the Lord. And here you have this beautiful scene. Luke talks about it in Luke chapter 8 in greater detail, but Mark paints the picture. Now I want you to notice the urgency here. You have a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years, and Luke tells us the doctors have tried everything, and Luke's a doctor. He says they've tried everything and they can't heal her. And then you've got this little girl who's dying, and her father gets through the crowd, and in his panic, can you sense his fear, the fear of every parent, that I can't help my child? And he gets to Jesus and he says, if you'll come and lay your hands on her. And Jesus is like, of course I'll come. And he starts to walk. And a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years and she's just as fearful and panicked, she reaches up and touches him. And Jesus stops. But Jesus, don't stop. She's not going to die from this. She's lived with it for 12 years. She can live with it another 12 minutes. But Jesus stops and he says, power left me. And he has a conversation with her. And he says to her, don't be afraid. Go in peace. You've been healed. And Jesus turns from the delay and here comes the message, he waited too long. And most of us, that's where our story with Christ ends. He didn't do what I wanted him to do. It's over. And what does Jesus say to him? Don't be afraid, just believe. Remember what he said to the disciples in the boat? Why are you afraid? Don't you believe? Don't you have faith? Because our faith is not in what we can control or what we want. Our faith must be in the one who has more authority than anything we fear. Anything we fear. You see, the theme of fear is significant throughout these chapters. It's all the things we, we fear, all of us in our life. The storms that are going on right now that we can't control. We've never been through a storm like this. We've been through a lot of storms, but this one's different. This one frightens me to my core. What am I going to do? What's going to happen to me? I could be crushed by this and fail, and Jesus stands up and he says, I can calm the storms, but what if I don't? Do you still believe I won't abandon you? And then we have evil, and there's attacks, and there's pressure, and we fight against our own flesh and blood, and, and we know that it's a spiritual war going on. It's, we we want to go back to the garbage. We want to go back to the darkness. We want the satisfaction of the now versus waiting on the better, and Jesus can cast out that if you believe. And then we've got a woman who struggled physically for 12 years, and some of you were there. The doctors say, I don't know what to do for you. I, I don't know how to make you better. And you just wonder and you think, Jesus, please, please take this from me. And you got people in a frantic right now. Someone's going to die, Lord. Please stop them from dying. Please stop them from dying. And he doesn't. And in the midst of all of this, the question, 
Jesus said, do you trust me? Because I can calm the storm. I can cast out the darkness. And I can heal your body. And church, listen to me. He's telling us, and I can raise you from the dead. So what do we learn? When storms and evil and pain and suffering and death come upon us. Many of us, we end our story there, but we shouldn't. Mark wants us to know he came to show us everything we fear, he resolves. We focus on who he is, not what we're facing. We focus on his condition, not ours. And lastly, we focus on the timelessness of his power, not the urgency of our panic. Is he Lord God, church? Is Jesus the creator of all things? Can he heal your hurt? Can he heal your disease? Can he raise you from the dead? Because the one who went to the cross to bleed and suffer in turmoil, cast into the tombs, walked out, and the last great weapon that Satan has has been ended. And he says, do you believe? Do you believe he's more powerful? Do you believe he's more compassionate? Church, do you believe he's more lasting? See, some of us here today, we have never, ever taken a knee before Jesus Christ and given ourselves to him. We've come to church. Remember last week we talked about there's a difference between being in the crowd and being a follower? And for some of us, we have come to church and we've been raised in the church, but never once on our own did we stand up and say, if none of the rest of the world went, when Jesus leaves, I'm following him. And you must make that decision. It's not me saying it for the church. It's not me saying it for some uh, outward sign. Until you proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you are lost in your sins. The blood of Christ cannot be yours until you desire it and ask for it. But when you do, everything you fear goes to his authority. And his promise is, I will never leave you nor forsake you. If you've never made that decision, and God's calling you this day, and he's saying to you, do you trust me? And you choose to trust him? Oh, I'd love to tell you it's going to get easy and there'll be no fear. I'd be lying. Because sometimes God's solutions to our fear is worse than our fear. Sometimes he stretches us and challenges us to get rid of the boats and get rid of the doctors and get rid of the other things and just say, you're my only hope. And if you need prayer today because you're scared, it's better to admit you're scared than act like you're not because none of us are fooled anyway. So today, if you have never made that choice for yourself or you want someone to pray with you and encourage you, when you leave this room, there'll be some tables out there. I'll be standing there with some of our elders and response team. You'll know who to go talk to if someone's talking to me because they'll have a, a lanyard that says prayer team. So if they walk up and ask what they can do, don't panic. They want to help. You want someone to pray with you or answer your questions or help you. I'm here to tell you, Jesus is more lasting than anything that scares you. He will be there. He is able. That's why we worship him. Let's stand together. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com dot com.